Well, if you have a Bible, if you turn to Galatians chapter 2, I want to read starting in verse 11 down through the end of the chapter again. We read Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. This is Paul speaking, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. And Father, I just ask, Lord, this this important doctrine of justification by faith, Lord, I just ask you'll give us all ears to hear and that we can clearly understand what it means to trust in you only for our salvation. And I thank you that you'll do that for us today in Jesus' name. Paul had said that his apostolic ministry came directly from God himself, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, not only his ministry, his apostolic ministry, but he also said that his message came directly from the Lord. And look down and Back in chapter 1, real quick, in verse 11 and 12, it says, Paul says, But I may know to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. He said, I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say when he received that direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ, which that was a tremendous thing, he said, I didn't go to Jerusalem to check it out with the other apostles to make sure it was right. He said, no, instead, I spent three years in Arabia. Then after three years, he said, I made a visit to Jerusalem. I spent two weeks with Peter and I met James, the Lord's brother. And then he said he preached this gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ had given him by direct revelation. He says he went on to preach that gospel for 14 years. Now, that's a long time. So he preached that message the Lord gave him in Syria and Cilicia. Then he said he had a revelation. God told him, go to Jerusalem. And he visited Jerusalem. He wanted to make sure that he, Peter, James, and John were all on the same page. And he said the reason he did that, he didn't want his efforts to be in vain. He wanted to make sure the gospel he preached matched up with the gospel that they preached. So he presented to them, to these men, he said privately, he had a lot of wisdom in what he did. He, he privately presented the, the message that he preached, and he also presented the fruit of his efforts, an uncircumcised Greek named Titus. 
brought him along with him. And Peter, James, and John, when they heard his message and saw Titus, they said, we don't have any problem at all with your message. It's the exact same message that we're preaching. And as far as Titus goes, these guys snuck in there. They're trying to get him circumcised. We're saying he doesn't have to be circumcised. We understand the gospel message and we are no longer under the law. And so he's good. Paul's like, hey, the false brethren didn't prevail. I didn't give them a moment's notice for what they said. They were wanting to get him snipped. It wasn't going to happen is what they said. So Paul goes on to say, look, me and all the apostles were of one accord. They gave me the right hand of fellowship. So what he's telling the Galatians through all this is I'm as much of an apostle as those of renown, as Peter, James, and John. I'm on the same level they are. I'm just as qualified, and we all have the same message. So these guys are trying to come into Galatia. They're trying to say that you didn't give us the complete message, that I didn't give you, Galatians, the complete message. He says, that's not true. I'm telling you right here, I got it directly from the Lord. He's the one that commissioned me. I checked it out with the other apostles. We're all in agreement. So whatever these guys are saying, I don't know what they're saying, but it's not true. You know, there's three things, in case you didn't know it, there are three things that have to happen for you to be an apostle. That's in case we run across some modern-day apostle, so-called. But one thing was you had to see the risen Lord. That was one thing that had to be a qualification. And Paul had that happen to him on the road to Damascus. You also had to be commissioned by the Lord himself. That also happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. Now, we know the 12 were called by the Lord when he called them all and it said he called 12 to come up to a mountain and he ordained them to be with him. He's going to train them. The third thing was you had to be taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. The 12 apostles, they spent three years with Jesus in training, being taught. A lot of times he'd pull them aside, tell them things privately, wouldn't he? Give them more understanding than everyone else had. Paul was also taught by the Lord, I believe, for three years in Arabia. He didn't have a class of 12. This is one-on-one. Just a class of one, Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ, which I would have liked to have been in on that class. So what he's doing is he's ending chapter one by showing that he's qualified as an apostle and his message is spot on. There's not any problem with his gospel message. But then in chapter two, a problem arises. Paul had visited Jerusalem and Peter decided to visit the Gentile church of Antioch. And that's Paul's home church. I believe him and Barnabas and others were pastoring the church at the time. And Peter did something that caused the apostolic sparks to fly, so to speak. And Paul had to have a public confrontation, face-to-face confrontation with Peter. And why is that? Look down in verse 11. Now, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed or he stood condemned. Why? For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Before these men from James came, Peter had been eating with the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were mostly the ones who made up this church in Antioch. Now, there were some Jews there, but this church would have mainly been comprised of Gentiles. And Peter, he's saying, you accepted them as brothers in the Lord. No need for you to be circumcised. You're enjoying Purnell's old folk sausage every morning for breakfast. And this went on for a while. This thing where it says he was eating with them. This is in the past tense. In other words, continuous past tense. This went on for a while that he's doing that. But then this circumcision party comes and all of a sudden Peter's going to start acting like a Jew. 
wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. Now, that's what the Jews did. They wouldn't eat with Gentiles. They wouldn't eat the same food. They wouldn't use the same utensils. They wouldn't even sit in the same room as a Gentile. No socializing at all. And we know that from Acts 10, 28, when Peter, after he had the vision and the sheet was let down and he went on and went with the men that were sent from Cornelius, he went with them in obedience to the Lord. When he gets to the house and Cornelius sees Peter, heard about him and all this, he bows down on the ground and it says in Acts 10, and begins to worship him. And Peter has to lift him up by the arm. He's like, I'm just a man like you. Don't worship me. But Peter said this to him. He says, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation or a Gentile. But Peter said, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Well, let me ask you a question. How did God show Peter that no man was common or unclean? Through unclean animals. There weren't men being let down in that sheet, were there? There were unclean animals. It says four-footed animals in the vision, four-footed animals, creeping things, and birds of the air. There is a connection between, I'm going to show it to you here, Hope between the unclean and clean animals and men, unclean men. This whole thing, this whole idea, so for us it's not that big a deal, but back at that time in the early church, this whole idea of Jews just ignoring the Levitical food laws, it caused a major controversy. And two reasons for that. The first was when a faithful Jew observed those food laws, it set them apart from the Gentiles. When they were taken into captivity and dispersed into Gentile nations, the Jews then became acutely aware that what we eat and what we're allowed to eat and what you all eat is not the same thing. There's a major difference between us and the Gentiles. We have a good example of that of the three Hebrew boys. When the king's food was set before them, they're like, we can't do that. We can't eat that. Do what you have to do, but we're not going to eat it. The difference there, why did God have that difference in the foods. It was to remind the Jews that they were a chosen nation and a holy nation, a chosen people and a holy nation. And that whole idea of the Jews, if you've been around any Jews or you go to a grocery store, it still holds true today that they have a different diet than everyone else. You know, you know kosher foods and you go in there on foods you buy in the grocery store, they'll have a U with a circle around it or a K for kosher with a circle around it, a star or a triangle. So it still distinguishes Jews up to this present day from other people, from the rest of us, you could say, Gentiles or whatever. But the second reason for that controversy is that the Lord Jesus himself insisted that the food laws that were in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and they were how a Jew identified himself. The Sabbath, circumcision, and the food laws were the three things. But Jesus told him in Mark and in Matthew, Matthew 15 and Mark 7, those food laws no longer hold. All foods are now clean. That coupled with the apostolic decision that the food laws didn't have to be observed. And the only reason they would say it would be, Paul granted that if it's going to cause a weak brother to stumble, it's not that you can't eat that food, but you just don't, right? So that they don't stumble. But it's not a matter of salvation. So if you would turn to put something there in Galatians and turn to Mark 7. 
So we have here at the beginning of Mark 7 that the scribes and Pharisees, they're criticizing Jesus' disciples because they say you're eating bread without washing your hands, with unwashed hands. And Jesus says, wait a minute, you all are missing the point in this whole thing. It's more important, he's telling them, to have a pure heart than to have clean hands. If you look there in Mark 7, look what it says in verses 5 to 8. It says, then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He says, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things as you do. And then look what he goes on to say. And he talks about this whole honor in your father and mother in the Corban. But look. Move on down to verse 14, and look what he says here. He says, When he had called all the multitudes to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. He says, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now that would have been pricking their ears up right away. What do you mean? It's not what you eat that messes you up. That's what we always have been taught since we were kids. He goes on to say, verse 17, when he entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples, they want to know, what did you mean? His disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it doesn't enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated and it says, thus purifying all foods. Almost every other version besides King James, New King James, will say, thus he declared all foods clean. Either way you want to take it. But that's what he's basically saying, though. He's saying and saying that it doesn't matter what you eat. That is not what defiles you. It's what's in your heart that defiles you. So I want to talk about this for a minute, okay? So have you ever wondered why some animals are classified as clean and some are unclean? Have you ever wondered why that's the case? Cloven-footed, cud-chewing land animals like sheep and cattle may be eaten, but other animals are unclean like pigs and camels. They can't be eaten. Only fish with scales and fins may be eaten. They're the only fish that may be eaten. Certain named birds, there are certain birds, birds of prey may not be eaten. So there's a lot of explanations and there's not a lot of agreement on why that's the case, why he's picked some animals that are clean and some that are unclean. One explanation is that God just randomly, arbitrarily said this food, that food, that food, and it's just because I said so. I don't really think that's the case. The other one was that the unclean animals were the animals, and they're mainly thinking of pigs in this case, the unclean animals were the animals that were sacrificed by the pagans. So God didn't want them having anything to do with those and called those animals unclean. The problem with that is they know from history that they basically sacrificed the same animals. So the Jews didn't sacrifice pigs. Some pigs were sacrificed, but they would sacrifice cattle, sheep, oxen, the same thing the Jews were. So that one doesn't hold. Another common one is the food laws were because of hygiene, that these unclean animals carried disease. The trouble with that is that wasn't always true. 
because some animals that were classified as unclean were not a problem to eat. For instance, camel. Now, no one's going to go out for lunch today and order camel, but if you were an Arab, camel was and is a delicacy. They like camel, and they're not dying from camel. There's a lot of Arabs in this world. The other thing is, the Bible doesn't say a thing about don't eat these animals because it's bad for your health or they carry diseases. There's no mention of that whatsoever. The other thing is, if all of this, don't eat this and you can't eat this, had to do with health reasons, why would the Lord Jesus, well, I'd say he was concerned with our health, then why would he say, you know, now it's okay to eat unhealthy animals, so what, so you can all practice divine healing a little more? So that really doesn't make sense to me, either any of those three. I think this is the best explanation, and that is that God was trying to teach Israel the principle of what is holy and what is unholy. And let me explain what I mean by that. Holiness and cleanness equaled wholeness and what is normal. What is normal, what God intended. For instance, a priest, you could not be a priest, even if you were in the line of the priesthood, if you had a defect, if you weren't whole bodily and the way God intended a person to be. In other words, if you were blind, lame, if your face was marred in some way, you had your one arm's long and one arm short, or if you're a dwarf or a hunchback, you couldn't be a priest. He wasn't going to let something come into the Holy of Holies that was deformed. And we think of that like, man, you're going to treat a dwarf that way? That's not nice. It, it wasn't the point. The point is that God is holy and he intends things to be. So when we get into heaven, there's not going to be any deformities, in other words. A leper was unclean, but it wasn't because he needed to take a bath right? <laughs> the leper was unclean is because the way he was, he was not according to God's design. He had a disease that made him abnormal, okay? So he was also separated because they considered it contagious. But the reason he was unclean is because he's got something that's making him abnormal. It's the same with unclean spirits. It's not because they made people dirty that they're, that's what we think of as unclean. It's because they make people abnormal, not the way God intended. So that which is unclean is that which is not according to God's design. And Jesus, this is, to me, it ties right into the gospel. Jesus came to make the unclean clean. He came to make the leper cleansed, right? And that's what the power of God in the gospel does. It comes to take what Satan has deformed and bring it back to normal. So who did Jesus heal? The ones that couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, right? Couldn't go into God's presence. The lame, the blind, the deformed, the woman with the bowed back, the epileptic boy said he had an unclean spirit, the withered hand. And that's what holiness is. It's a return to what God intended man to be. For instance, 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says this, Paul writes, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify is where we get our word holy. In other words, may the God of peace make you completely holy. And what does that involve? This is what this verse says. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he doesn't just say your spirit be holy. He says your whole spirit, soul, and also your body 
be completely sanctified or whole, right? The salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ, he has come to make us completely whole. Not just our spirit. We have that in 2 Corinthians 7. Laying aside all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord, right? So it's not just our spirit where we're delivered of anger, lust. We think of those things in terms of holiness, but it's also our soul and body. A whole body in God's sight is a holy body. It's the way it is. Animals are divided into three groups. You got the ones that fly, fly in the air, that walk on land, and those that swim. Birds have wings and two feet, fish have fins and scale, and land animals have hooves. That's the way they get around. And so the clean animals are the ones that come up to those standards. The unclean don't. That's why fish with no fins and scales, your catfish, you couldn't eat those if you were a Jew because they're considered abnormal in that sense. Land animals without cloven hooves and that don't chew, cut, or unclean. So sheep and goats and cattle, they are the ones that set the standard. Pigs and camels don't meet the standard. Not only that, but with Peter, we know what? He says that some people, they seem like they came to the Lord, but as next thing you know, they're back like pigs doing what? Wallowing in the mire. That's a little unclean, I'd say, right? So Gordon Wenham who's a conservative Old Testament scholar. There's very few of these guys left these days, but in his commentary on Leviticus, he says this, there is a parallel between the holiness looked for in man and the cleanness of animals. Man must conform to the norms of moral and physical perfection, and animals must conform to the standards of the animal group to which they belong. So as I was saying, that you know, he... In the vision, he drops down the animals and he says they're the unclean, never ate anything unclean. But God is really talking about what? Men. So there's where that parallel is. If you see that, what I'm trying to say. The birds of prey that ate dead animals that still had blood in them, the reason they're unclean, it's not that they didn't have wings and feet, but they paralleled what unclean Gentiles did. What did unclean Gentiles do? They ate food with blood in them. And that's why they had to set that restriction in Acts 15. Hey, we're not going to put the law on them. But one thing, because here's the whole thing, the thing about eating meat with blood, that wasn't part of the law. That goes back to Noah. That's what God's saying for this is the way humans should be. And the Gentiles were just, had just gotten to where they were still eating blood. In fact, when I worked up there, near Purnell's at a restaurant, one of the guys that worked there was telling me they'll take the blood when they're killing, slaughtering those pigs and that blood's flowing out. He'll take a cup of that and just drink the blood. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Obviously not a Christian. (laughs) That's what they would do. He was a little strange. But anyways, these food laws that were given to Israel were to remind them they were a chosen people to be holy before the Lord. And that's what divided the Jews from the Gentiles. There was a wall set up, wasn't there, in a lot of different ways between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Bible tells us that wall now has been taken down. I'd like us to see that. So if you turn over to Ephesians 2, look what it says here. Dividing wall is taken down. I think we think that it's between us and the Lord, and it's really between the Jews and the Gentiles that this wall, and there's peace now between the Jews and Gentiles. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, it says, 
Paul writes, therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. At that time, you were without Christ being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments. And that would include the food laws contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and those who were near. For through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, now have access by one spirit to the Father. So what he's saying there is there is no longer a difference between Jews and Gentiles. And what he's telling us is what we know, all are sinners in need of the inward cleansing and the wholeness that only can come one way. It doesn't come through not eating clean and unclean animals, right? It comes through the cross, the grace of God, and the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus, all he was doing was bringing out the symbolism that was there in the Levitical food laws when he said, it's what comes out of a man that defiles a man. The evil thoughts, the fornications, the adultery, the murder. So now as Christians, Jews and Gentiles, we no longer need to have the law food laws or any other kind of law to remind us of God's holiness, to remind us of God's will. Because what does it say in the new covenant what happens? God does what? It says that he writes his law where? On our hearts and in our minds. It's there. We don't need that outward symbolism anymore. Go back to Galatians. Peter knew all that oh too well. So he knew that the food laws were fulfilled in Christ. And he ate with the Gentiles but then when those men came, he gave in to fear and compromise, and he became a hypocrite. And the reason he was a hypocrite, he acted like to be right with God. He had to separate from the Gentiles, go back under the law, and Paul's on his case because he knew better. And that's what we have. Let's read again in verse 14. It says, but when I, Paul, saw that they were not straightforward, he's talking about Peter, Barnabas, and the Jewish believers, about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? He's like, Peter, what are you doing? Because everybody knows from Acts 10 on, we all know that you no longer live like a Jew. You haven't done that for quite a while. And you've been living here in Antioch quite a while like a Gentile. It's not hidden. You don't preach the law. You don't preach that people need to get under the law. You preach the gospel of grace, that it's faith alone. But now you're aligning yourself up with these people that say faith alone isn't enough. You've got to add works, the works of the law. Grace isn't enough. And it's not because they're right that you're doing that. It's just because you're afraid of them. And he said that isn't right. And this brings us to the great statement, Paul's great defining statement in verse 15. Look what it says. He's talking to Peter, he's talking to Barnabas, he's talking to the whole church that's gathered there. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, 
but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, he says, no flesh will be justified. Now we have three words introduced here at this point in verse 16 that we haven't had yet in this epistle, this letter. And they are faith, law, and more importantly, most importantly, the word justified. Now that word justified is used three times in verse 16, once in verse 17, and once in verse 21. And Paul is going to go on to tell them this is what it means to be justified by faith. It's faith versus law. Now listen, Martin Luther said this. He said, this is the truth of the gospel. I'm saying this is critical to understand what is being said here because too many of us, we're still looking at what we do as the basis for how we're accepted to God. We still think somehow we have to do things to earn salvation. And I'm not saying there won't be works involved. We'll talk about all that. But Martin Luther said this. He says, this is what we just read, verse 16. This is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal teaching of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. He says, most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this doctrine well. Teach it unto others, and Martin Luther, this is what he would say, he said, and beat it into their heads continually. <laughs> That's the way, he was kind of a rough and tough character. But he said, if it's lost, you lose this doctrine. He says, all doctrine is lost, and the church is lost. You know, I don't know if you've seen this, but you don't just have someone go off an error on one thing, and it's limited to that one thing. Generally, you get somebody going off in error in one thing, and they start going off in error in everything. We're seeing it happening, if you got your eyes open. So all of a sudden, something that was truth is no longer truth. It never just stays with that one thing. It branches off into everything to where faith isn't even understood anymore. The simple faith message that we have heard ad nauseum is confusing now amongst people. This should know better. And I'm saying that's the way it works. You don't go off on one thing and not go off on a lot of things. This whole doctrine of justification by faith is what separates Christianity, true Christianity, from all other religions. Whether you're talking about Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, even Catholicism. This is the difference right here. And what does it mean to be justified? It's a legal term and it means to be declared innocent free of charges, to be in the right, not guilty. The opposite of to be justified is to be condemned, to pronounce somebody you're guilty, or if you hear in a court case, you're condemned. He's a condemned criminal, getting ready to suffer execution. Definitely not innocent, been proven guilty. So it's the opposite of condemnation. Condemnation says you're guilty. Justification, when you're justified, it says you are not guilty. Condemnation says you're evil. Justification says you're righteous. Evil, that's a character thing, isn't it? We are evil by our nature, right? I mean, our deeds make us evil forever. But when we have union with Christ, we are counted as that we have been righteous, even though we haven't. That's the big thing about it all, right? Condemnation says you're bad. Justification says you're good. Now, that is the great problem of all men, and that is this, that we know, everybody knows, because everybody has a conscience, everybody knows that God is righteous and just. You just know that. Saint and sinner know that, and that we are 
not. Because all you have to do is go out on the streets, ask somebody, are you a good person? I'm a good person, because they're comparing themselves to what they see on TV, some rapist, serial murderer. But then all you have to do is go through the law. Have you ever told a lie? You ever do the whole Ray Comfort thing? And I'm telling you then, you ask them again, are you a good? No, I'm not. They're no longer a good person. Because their conscience is what's telling them that. They can't get away from that. It's that judge that God has put in everybody. And their conscience will no longer allow them when they're confronted with God's law, his righteousness, his standard. It will no longer allow them to say they're good because they know they're not. And they went from saying, I know I'm going to heaven. I'm a good person to where do you think it's going to be heaven or hell? You just ask him and they'll you don't prompt them. They'll say hell almost inevitably. Unless they're a Christian. So that's Job 25. Bildad said this. How can a man, any man, be righteous before God? That's the problem. And there are only two ways. And Paul answers that question in verse 16. He says, knowing that a man is not justified, declared not guilty, innocent, by the works of the law. That'll never happen that way, but there's only one way it can happen, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. So faith in Christ alone, Paul's saying, is the only way. And he's talking to Peter and Barnabas and all those Jews that are listening. He's saying, look, in verse 15, we're Jews by nature. We were born under the law. We lived under the law. We were restrained by the law. We tried to obey its commands. You all know that, all you that are Jews that are listening to me. He's saying we tithe, we fasted, we prayed, we offered sacrifices. But we learned something through all that. We learned, verse 16, that a man is not made right with God by trying to keep the law. Because for one thing, the law could never change our hearts. It didn't give us the power to live up to its demands. All the law does, and this is Romans chapter 7, all the law does is what? It condemns us, everyone, Jew and Gentile. It condemns you. I don't think Paul is limiting. He is in a sense, but I don't think he's limiting it just to the Jewish law, but all law. And you read this in the Greek, in the Greek Bible, there is no article, the. It doesn't say works of the law. It literally says a man is not justified by works of the law. Law. Now, he's talking to Jews, obviously. That's why they put the the in there. He's obviously talking about the law. But I think it's bigger than that even because you're not justified by any law, by any religion that sets up its little rules and laws and commandments is what it's saying there. Whether it's Jewish law, Muslim law, Catholic law, Amish law, liberal law. The liberals have their laws, don't they? Conservatives have their laws. You're not justified by any of that. Works of the law of any kind will never justify us. I've said this before, but it's true. Every single religion is a works religion except for true New Testament Christianity. They all tell you the same thing. You have to try harder. You have to do things to earn your salvation. You have to do things to make yourself right with God because we all realize something's not right. <laughs> Nobody's arguing that point. It's like, how do we make things right with God? How do we deal with that day of judgment? And all other religions say it's something you earn without exception. 
what do all these religions deal with? External deeds. And here's the thing. There is only one religion, one that has the power to change a heart. Because none of them can. Or else the gospel we believe is not true. The Bible's not true. If these other religions can truly change a man from the inside out, not just make some outward conformity, then the Bible's not true because they're saying the Spirit of God and the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice on Calvary, and that's the only way our old man, our old nature can be changed and dealt with, isn't it? That's what the cross is all about. None of the other ones can change a heart. There are Pharisees' righteousness. All other religions. And that's why Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees must exceed, far surpass, excel beyond. Because they didn't kill, that was their righteousness. But they hated, they resented, they criticized, they were censorious. They didn't commit adultery, but they lusted in their hearts. And he's saying, you better far excel the fact that you can say, I've never killed anybody, I've never committed adultery. Uh Uh-uh. Jesus says, that's what you heard, but I say unto you. And he starts dealing with the heart. And true Christianity is the only thing that can change the heart. So by the works of the heart, of the law, no flesh will ever be justified. Because the inward spirituality of the law, murderous thoughts make you a murderer. Lustful thoughts make you an adulterer. That's the spirituality of the law that Jesus brought out. And no flesh will ever be justified by that standard, ever, period. Not only can the works of the law not change our heart, the works of the law, no matter how many you do, they can never make you not guilty, which is what we need. We need to be able to stand before the Lord as not guilty or just. As we know this, I'm not telling you something you don't already know. No man has ever lived a sinless life except for one. So Jesus lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to the law, And he was truly, as a man, the only man that has ever existed. He was truly just or righteous. And that is what we need, what he has. So he paid the price for our sins and lived a perfectly righteous life, both things we need. So how do we get this righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ? It tells us there in verse 16. It's right there in the middle of that verse. And I want to focus in on this. So it says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And right there when Paul says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. And that word in is a Greek word that means into. We have believed into Christ Jesus. And that speaks of an act of deep commitment. It's an act of running to him for refuge, for mercy, and it doesn't happen just automatically to all men, right? Not all men are declared righteous or not guilty, but it's only through that commitment which comes through faith. Through faith, we are able to enter into, to come into union with Christ. We've talked about that quite a bit in trust and commitment. And when you commit yourself to Christ, you're committing not just to him as Savior, he's also Lord. And you can't cut him in half, saying, I want the Savior's part of it, but I don't want the Lord part of it. And that's how you gained righteousness and transformation. But he's your Lord from there on out. And that's the problem is he says to people, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? You say you've made this commitment. You say you've believed into me made this commitment, but yet you're not committed to me. You won't do what I say. 
And that's his issue. So what this implies, this believing into Jesus, is when you commit your life to him, you are turning your back on works of any kind. You're saying, this is my only hope. Works, I'm done with those. They're not going to get me anywhere except condemnation. Because here's the thing. When we try to present what we've done to God, like I said, it doesn't matter how godly you are, how holy you live. When we try to present that as the basis for our acceptance with him, we forfeited grace. Because you're trying to say, here's something that I did. It should cause you to accept me. He said, that doesn't work. Spurgeon had finished preaching a sermon on justification by grace. And a man came to him and he said, oh, sir, I have been praying and I do not think God will forgive me unless I do something to deserve it. And Spurgeon answered him. He says, I'll tell you, sir, if you bring any of your deservings, you shall never have it. God gives away his justification freely. And if you bring anything to pay for it, he will throw it in your face and will not give his justification to you. Now, that's a pretty blunt statement from Spurgeon. He says, you, you bring your works, something you've done to deserve his forgiveness. He's saying he won't have any of that. His forgiveness is always by grace only. So it's found only in his blood, isn't it? What did the Israelites do? Who was condemned? The Egyptians and the Israelites were let go free like they were not guilty. What did they do? All they did, they didn't supply the lamb. God had to supply however many hundreds of thousands of spotless, innocent lambs. He had to produce that, right? He gave it to them. All they did was take the blood. It wasn't their blood and apply that blood on their doorstep. And that's how they were free. Nothing they did, was it, that got them out of there, that brought their deliverance. In Romans 3.23, Paul writes, For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And we are being justified freely by his grace. That's what Spurgeon said. Freely by his grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. So it's faith in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that makes us righteous. His life, his death. Stephen Charnock had this discourse on the cleansing virtue of Christ's blood. He said this. I thought this was good. He says, a not guilty is entered into the court of God when the blood is pleaded. And a not guilty is inscribed upon the roll of conscience when this blood is sprinkled. Because we not only have to have God satisfied that the price was paid, we have to have our own conscience because it's condemning us because it knows what we've done, right? So when we go to him and ask for forgiveness for something that we've done, the argument isn't that we haven't done it. The argument is Jesus' blood has paid the price for this sin and I'm no longer guilty. And it's got to be applied to our conscience, doesn't it? God recognizes it and we have to recognize it. So Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, he comes to Jesus by night. And this man is an extreme legalist. He would have been to be in the position he was in. Kept every jot and tittle of the law. He would have been a lot like Paul. But yet he's coming to Jesus because he's seeing the, the spirit of God, the power of God, this man's life. Something Jesus has that he's missing. And he comes to him. All this law keeping has not given him deliverance. He knows something's not right. And Jesus didn't tell him. He didn't say, look, Nick. He didn't say, look, you need to fast more, give more, pray more. He said, this is what you need to do. You need to start completely over. Because none of these works you've done, none of this goodness that you've done, none of this 
position in the community that you're a good man, a good Christian. None of that matters, Nick. You got to be born again. You got to start completely over. And you need to have something that only, this is all of us, we need to remember this from beginning to end. What we need is not something we earn, it's only something that God can give. Because we are forever bankrupt in and of ourselves. Isn't that what he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. We'd have nothing. We never have anything. It's always coming from Him. Without me, you can do nothing. He is the vine. We are the branches. His life and power and grace and forgiveness has to flow into us. It doesn't go the other way, does it? And so he tells Nick, you're bankrupt. You're condemned. You need to see that. You're guilty and dying. John 3 the whole thing with Nicodemus, it starts in verse 1. And Jesus' answer to him goes right down into our famous verse of John 3.16. Because he's saying, he talks about the serpent on the pole. What could those people do? They're diseased. They're dying. They couldn't do anything. All they could do was look. Only a look at what God had given. And they were healed supernaturally. Not a thing they did other than just trust in what God had given. And that's what... He tells Nicodemus, it's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. Nothing you can do to earn it. You've got to receive it as a gift. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever will trust themselves to him will not perish, will not have a wasted life, but will receive eternal life. It's a gift. You can't do a thing to earn it ever, ever. Three times in verse 16, Paul declares that a man is justified by faith and not by works. And the first time he says it, he says, knowing, the beginning of verse 16, knowing, and that's a we. He's talking to all of them. He's saying to all the Jews, we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law. We know something that a man, any man, it's a general statement. No man is justified by the works of the law. But then he goes and gets personal. And after that, he says, but even we and then he's bringing in Peter, Barnabas, all the Jews. He's saying, we were Jews by nature. We lived under the law, but even we realized that wasn't going to work. And we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ Jesus. And then he's given the universal, the last time he talks about it, this is for all the universe. He says, for by, at the very end of verse 16, for by the works of the law, he says, no flesh. That is none. It's a universal statement. That's the theology of his statement. He's bringing in scripture there where he says, no flesh shall be justified. That's Psalm 143. That's what he's quoting there. So he's saying, we know it. We know it. And we've experienced it. We knew the law didn't justify us ourselves. And we had to have faith in Jesus Christ. And we know from the Bible that no man is justified by the works of the law. I got scripture to back it up. He hits it up three times. He's emphasizing that same point. So it moves on here in verses 17 to 18. There's an argument that the Judaizers, he's dealing with an argument. Paul will do this a lot of times. He'll deal with something that would be a question that would be raised by somebody. And that's what's happening. In verse 17, he says, But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? He says, Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So the, the Judaizers would have been reasoning with him like this, that Paul, your teaching of justification by faith alone, it's dangerous. 
saying you don't need the law because when you set aside the law, all you're doing is encouraging people to live in a godless way and they'll do what they want. They're saying if a person is right with God simply by believing in Jesus, why should they be holy? What's the point of being good? They'll just ignore the standards of the law. That was their argument. That's what he's dealing with here. They'll act like sinners. And Paul says there is no way that faith in Jesus Christ encourages sin. He said it's just the opposite. He says if I return to the law, then I will be a sinner because that's all it does is, you know, trying to get justified that way. It points out that you're a sinner and leaves you a sinner because it can't change you. That's what he's saying there. And so he goes on and here's his answer in verses 19 and 20. He says, for I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he's saying all the law did was kill me. Why would I go back to that? What do I need that for? But through Christ, he's saying, I died to it. Not so I can do what I want to do, just anything I want to do. That's not the freedom he gives. But so that now I'm dead to the law. It doesn't have any control over me. It's not dominating my life. Now I'm free to live to God. And that's what the gospel is. The Judaizers would say this. They're saying, man, this whole justification by faith thing is just legal fiction. You just got a person being declared not guilty and just, and they could just move on and say that and just live like they always did. You're saying their standings changed, but their character's always the same. And Paul's saying, no, that's not the case. I'm crucified with Christ. He lives in me now. There's a change that's taken place. So we're back to everything depends on, I'll say it probably for the hundredth time here, our union with Christ. Through this union, we are given his righteousness. When we're united to him, his righteousness, which this doesn't have to do with your holiness. This has to do with your legal standing before God. The fact that he lived perfectly before God in the law, obeyed perfectly, that is given to you through that union with Christ. But also when that happens, you're also changed. A complete transformation takes place in your nature. Both of those things happen. They're not the same, and they both happen through that union. That makes sense. So if you would, please turn back to Romans chapter 7, where Paul says he died to the law that he might live unto God. Romans 7 says that, and if you don't mind, we'll read that. Romans 7, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's freed from that law, so she's no adulteress, though she is married to another man. So he's just making an analogy. Verse 4, he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law. How? Through the body of Christ. That, here's the purpose, you might be married to another. To him who was raised from the dead, why? That we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit, just the opposite, to death. But now, he says, we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. 
What he's saying there is the law, we're not under it anymore. It is no longer our master. No longer our master. Who is? Jesus is our master. So our master is no longer this impersonal law, but our master is now very personal, isn't he? The master, the one we obey, the one whose law we're under, so to speak, because he does talk about the law of Christ. He lives to that. But that master is living in us. He's loving us. He's guiding us, teaching us, convicting us, comforting us, putting his fear in our hearts. And Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I died when he died, my old man. He says, it's no longer I, that old man that lives. But he's saying, now Christ lives in me. He's saying, I no longer live, but yet the life I live. He sounds like a contradiction. I no longer live, but I live. He's not confused because he's saying now that old man is dead and the life I live now, I live by faith. I live by trust. And trust in what? Trust in the grace of God. Truly, because the grace of God is what brings all we need. Faith, love, joy, peace. None of those things come from within, do they? And sometimes we think we have to manufacture that stuff. Like, oh, I don't have, I'm not as loving as I should be. I'm not this or that. And we try to feel like we need to manufacture it ourselves. And the gospel is, we can't do that. It's the fruit of what? Ourselves? It's the fruit of the Spirit. Well, I come back to where we are totally bankrupt in every sense of the word. We don't have righteousness. We don't have the ability to live the law in any sense of the word, to love other people, whatever you want to say. We're dependent on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ for everything, and that is how it is supplied, is through that union with Him. That's how it's given. Christ lives in me. And when He does that, it should be affecting our thinking, our value, our relationships. And how does He do that? Through His Word, right? If you abide in me and my Word abides in you. That's how he abides in us. So listen to these words of John Stott. I'm just about done. This man has a lot of wisdom. He's an older man. I think he's still alive, but he's a British guy. But he says this about these verses. He says, perhaps now it is becoming clearer why a Christian who is justified in Christ is not free to sin. In Christ, in union with him, old things are passed away and all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5. This is because the death and resurrection of Christ are not only historical events, he gave himself and now lives, but events in which through faith union with him, his people have come to share. And we've talked about that before when we taught in Colossians. Our union with him means that when he died, we die. When he came to life, we came to life. And when he was risen, we were risen. We partake of that. It's just not things that happened to him and we're just outside looking in. And so he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He says, once we have been united to Christ in his death, our old life is finished. And Stott says, it's ridiculous to suggest that we should ever go back to it. And living in us, he gives us new desires for holiness for God. That's what the Lord will do. Give us new desires for heaven. He said, it's not that we cannot sin again. We can, but we do not want to. The whole tenor of our life has changed. See how daringly personal Paul makes it. Christ gave himself for me. Christ lives in me. And he ends saying this, No Christian who has grasped 
these truths could ever seriously contemplate reverting to the old life. That's true, isn't it? If you realize what he did, how much he loved you, and that he lives in you, and that your old man, the one that was going to send you to hell, he's dealt with that and it's dead, and now he's going to live his life through you, and what a privilege that is. See, how could you know that? And we sh that's what we're talking about. This should be just more than we're going to have church again and we're out the door and forget it all. And he's saying, if, when you know that, how can you ever want to go back to your old way? Paul's answer, to end it here in verse 21, this is his answer to those that say it's got to be works. Look in verse 21, back in Galatians 2, he says this. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, he says, then Christ died in vain. Because there's two foundations he's saying here that are the foundations of the Christian faith, and they are God's grace, his free gift, and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So it's God's grace, and his grace gave us the Lord Jesus Christ and his death. It is finished. He did everything that is needed. No works need to be added to that. And to suggest that we need to add our works to earn our salvation, as Spurgeon said, it's an insult to God and the tremendous price he paid. Paul is ending by saying here, if it's what we do, if it's what we do that make us right with God and that's what we depend on and that's what we'll present before him, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross? It doesn't make sense, does it? He had to do it all. I want to not hesitate to say works will follow true faith. We've been saying that, haven't we? There will be fruit. There will be works. But they don't earn us heaven. All they are is evidence that we have been united to our Lord. Ephesians 2 says we are his workmanship created in union in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to end with this hymn that says what we've been saying this morning. My hope is in the Lord. And it goes like this. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. No merit of my own his judgment to suppress. In other words, what I've done is not going to get rid of his judgment. My only hope is found in Jesus's righteousness. And now for me, he stands before the father's throne shows his wounded hands and names me as his own. His grace has planned it all, tis mine but to believe and recognize his work of love and Christ receive. And the chorus says, for me he died, for me he lives, and everlasting life and light he freely gives. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, Lord, for the gracious gift of your son that you've given us. And we thank you. He was willing to die on our behalf and not only die on our behalf and give us his righteousness, but that he has come to transform our nature, to live within us, to give us the power to live the lives we need. And, and we can fulfill that law, that law of love, not through the law, not through our own works, not through our flesh but through the abiding Holy Spirit that you've given us in the blood and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're so thankful for that, Lord. Amen. Nothing we could do, but you gave it all. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.